Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long may she reign. Presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. Hey guys, welcome back to the Long May Shireen podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. So, I hope you guys are all doing very, very well. Um, I've had, I, I'd say, a pretty interesting week. Um... I don't know if it's come out on Disney Plus yet, but, like, I got to watch it. So, my, my dormitory hosted, like, a, um, uh, Eras Tour movie watch party. And, you know, I don't go to a ton of school events. I'm not a very social person. You know, I prefer to lock myself in my room and <laughs> do a podcast for the masses, um, or read. But, um, I decided to go because my mom was like, y- you should, <laughs> you should go. Please go to school events. Be normal college student I did it was so much fun like I I didn't know if I was gonna like actually have fun I actually didn't know how many people were gonna show up a decent amount of people showed up and you know the lounge where we did it there's like a lot of traffic moving through there like a lot of other kids just like you know going around the entire complex doing stuff um (laughs) we had this moment I think it was when Taylor was um singing illicit affairs there were a whole bunch of girls who uh like walked past us and they did like a birthday surprise thing for like i'm assuming a friend of theirs um in the building and they walked back in after they had done it because they did it outside in the courtyard and they came back in and they started they started singing really loudly with us like it was very very concert like i really liked it i i sat down for the whole three hour thing didn't think I was gonna make it that long um also we had like a Taylor Swift quiz that was really fun uh, <laughs> I I didn't win but I tried I got like I got half of them right the thing that got me I think was the um was like the name that song by the lyrics I'm not very good at that <laughs> if you didn't know I don't recognize songs incredibly well by their lyrics I need the music the music helped but um other girls got squishmallows, which is great. Although I wanted one because, you know, I have a big squishmallow collection. Well, not big, but uh, I'd like a squishmallow that I didn't have to buy myself. That'd be nice. <laughs> anyway, 
enough about me. That's not what you guys are here for. It is still Black History Month, which means we've got another black woman to talk about. And today we are talking about Amanda America Dixon. What a name, eh? Um, I had never heard of Amanda before I like put her on my list like years ago. Um, I can't even remember how I found out about her. I want to say, hmm, I can't remember how I found out about Amanda. Uh, but Amanda is very, she's like an anomaly <laughs> in a way. She was a mixed race African-American woman who was one of the richest women in Georgia. Like she was this like crazy heiress and she has such an interesting life and I've been wanting to do an episode on her for a while so I figured now is the time. Um, now I don't always do this and maybe I should if I remember but uh, for this episode I'm gonna say trigger warning especially for the start of Amanda's life because the, the the way she comes into the world uh, it's not the most savory <laughs> relationship that her parents had so uh trigger warning for slavery trigger warning for sexual assault trigger warning for a lot of things that we're gonna have to discuss today all right let's get into it so amanda america dixon was born on the 20th of november 1849 on the dixon plantation to an enslaved woman named julia lewis and the owner of the dixon plantation david dickinson now, of course, her being born on November 20th makes her a Scorpio, but I think in Amanda's case, she fits the cunning and ambitious aspects of being a Scorpio. Amanda was good with money. She knew how to manage herself in a world that was looking to reject her at every turn as a wealthy African-American woman. Now, as I said before with the trigger warning, the start of Amanda's story begins with an assault. And Amanda's parents' story was really hard for me to read about like it's not it's not the nicest thing in the world and I imagine for people listening it would be harder to hear about so if this part is too upsetting I suggest you skip ahead a few minutes while I talk about Amanda's parents her upbringing and her education what she looked like because this is not it's not a good story so we don't know a ton about uh, Amanda's mom, Julia, other than that she was owned by Amanda's paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Dickinson, and that she had a mom named Rose and two older brothers. So according to what little access I was able to get from a good biography of Amanda, we know that in 1848, Julia Lewis was 12 years old and was probably doing what a ton of enslaved girls her age were, was doing, like picking cotton, learning how to garden, how to take care of wealthy people. Then, according to family stories, and this is from the white side of the Dickinson family, sometime in February of 1848, David Dickinson, the 40-year-old son of Julia's master, Elizabeth Dickinson, was riding through the field and inspecting the work of his slaves when he saw Julia. On that day, David went up to Julia, swung her on top of his horse, and rode away with her, where he assaulted her and would later get her pregnant. Apparently from there he kept her as a concubine and apparently treated her well. However, uh, this motherfucker still sexually assaulted a little girl uh, who could not only not say no to him as an enslaved person, she was also 12 years old. And probably also didn't understand what was happening to her. Maybe she did. I don't know. I don't know her life. Now, 
according to some things I read in one of Amanda's biographies, Julia never really forgave David for what he did to her. Apparently, David's mom was mad at him, too, because Elizabeth Dickinson was, like, really fond of little Julia. Like, she thought that she was, like, a really good servant and, you know, treated her as well as, you know, people treated enslaved people, which is usually, you know, like, the bars on the floor. It's just awful really, that she had to go through that. Worst of all, she hardly got to raise her own daughter because David Dickinson had other plans for his daughter that did not include slave life. Now, speaking of David Dickinson, we know much more about him. Unfortunately, and unfortunately, because he is important to Amanda's story, we got to set up his background, and as much as I'd like to forget, he exists. So, David Dickinson was born on July 6, 1809 in Georgia into a wealthy planter family. He expanded his family's wealth through agriculture and trading. Uh, he and a partner opened a store in Sparta, Georgia, the seat of Hancock County, in 1835. Eleven years later, he sold his business and purchased land, equipment, livestock, and slaves and began to farm. Now, over the years, David started to garner a lot of fame for his efficiency and writing on agricultural topics. Ironically, he was most famous for his attitudes towards slave labor, where he made it a point not to use violence like whippings and beatings to get good work from his enslaved people. He found that when you removed violence from the equation, enslaved people were more productive than they, than they would have been otherwise, which is fucking unbelievable to me that he was able to figure out that enslaved people were more productive and fucking better at their jobs. Well, not their jobs. Is it a job if you don't get paid for it? It's slavery. Uh, without the threat of violence. However, he still decided, despite, you know, his, like, philosophy about not using violence against a slave, he still decided it was okay to sexually assault a 12-year-old. Like, what kind of logic is that? Like, you're famous for your non-violent methods against enslaved people, and you're like, hmm, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna commit a violent act against one of my slaves. Maybe it didn't count him. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, David is wealthy. He is, in fact, one of the wealthiest people in the state of Georgia at this time. And because of that wealth and influence, he was allowed to do uh, the one thing that few slave donors with mixed children were allowed to do, which is actually raise that child. Now, almost from the second Amanda was born, she lived with her white relatives as opposed to her black relatives. David put his daughter's early raising in charge of his mother Elizabeth and Elizabeth absolutely adored her granddaughter. They had a very close relationship as Amanda initially worked as her grandmother's domestic servant which was a pretty typical job for young enslaved girls girls especially ones whose dads were the masters of the households that happened in a lot of uh, slave house households. Um, Amanda even slept in her grandmother's room for the day uh, sorry from the day she was born to the day her grandmother died which I don't know if that's like affection from Elizabeth Dickinson or convenience because like I guess it would be more convenient to have the person serving you within your room if you need anything in the night I, I really hope it was affection like oh I love my granddaughter I want her to sleep in my room but like it's just probably convenience now <sighs> I don't know how true this is because a lot of information we have about Amanda's early life is from Dickinson family history the white side um, and they're obviously going to make themselves look good when it comes to their most famous family member. Anyway, Dickinson family history says um, that Amanda grew up not only with a lot of privilege, but also with a lot of love from her white family. Her dad was especially fond of her and personally took charge of her education. She learned to read, write, play the piano, which was a very unusual upbringing for a mixed-race child. Um, Amanda was also taught social graces, such as how to walk, talk, and act like a well-brought-up Southern lady. 
Everyone on the plantation, including her own relatives, um, calls her Miss Mandy. And the only time that she interacted with her mother was when she was working in the house. Um, in addition to her fine education, Amanda's father wanted to make sure that she knew how to manage her own finances, even if he didn't leave her the business. She still stood to inherit some money when David Dickinson died. Now, as a black woman, it was important that she knew how to protect and manage her own money from those who might try to take it away from her, like a husband, or the courts, or other members of her family who think she didn't deserve the money. You know, people like that. As for Amanda's looks, we actually have a lot of pictures of her, and I gotta say, she was very, very pretty. She looks like a very refined young lady, like very, very Victorian, very ha <laughs> Now, uh, lucky for her, she didn't seem to inherit many of her dad's features, which is a good thing because the dude was ugly as hell. My fucking god, like, David Dickinson was fat. He had, like, straight black hair, these little, little beady little eyes that, you know, look exactly like uh, the child sex offender that he was. Um, anyway, point is, Amanda seems to have inherited more of her mother's looks. Um, other than that, I'd say her nose kind of looks a lot like her dad's. Like, it's like, it's pretty, um, it's pretty straight. Other than that, she looks more like what I imagined her mother would have looked like. Um, we don't have any pictures of, uh, Julia, but we do have some oral histories about what she looked like. And it said that Julia was, um, at the time of her assault, a small copper-colored girl with nice teeth and soft hair, which is kind of creepy, kind of a creepy way to describe a 12-year-old. That's pretty much the extent of what we know about the appearance of Julia Lewis. Now, all the skills she learned as she was growing up would be an asset as she was about to grow up in an era where she would not only be legally free, but she would also be able to advance herself and her family. Now, with Amanda being born in 1848, her teenage years were spent during the Civil War. Naturally, her white family was on the side of the Confederacy, with her father actually supplying grain to Confederate troops. Now, during the war, Amanda lost her grandmother, Elizabeth, and she was legally inherited by her father. Now, you're probably wondering at this point, if Amanda's father and grandmother loved her so much and were trying to raise her as this, like, proper southern belle, why didn't they just free her? Like, it seems like a natural thing to do in this case if you have a relationship with your mixed-race child and you have the power to free her. Seems weird, right? Now, uh, the thing is, even if they wanted to free her, they couldn't have. Um, in 1801, Georgia passed a law that slave owners couldn't personally manumit slaves and would have to ask the Georgia legislator for permission to free Amanda. Not to mention, the Georgia legislator hardly ever uh, granted enslavers' requests to uh, free slaves, so even if they... Sorry. The word legislator has fucked up my speech right now. For people to manumit their slaves so georgia was probably trying to stop that which is shitty of them anyway uh luckily for amanda the union won the war and the 13th amendment was ratified on december 6 uh, 1865 which legally freed amanda and all her other black relatives now even though amanda's dad was on the confederacy side he adapted actually pretty well to the reconstruction era um, unlike some other uh, former slave owners, um, he was one of many former slave owners to transition his plantation into a tenant farming system where his former slaves paid him rent and would farm his land, but he would provide for them and pay for them. Um, I doubt they were paid well. I don't know a lot about this tenant farming system, but David was uh, praised um, pretty heavily 
about his like smooth transition from uh slave plantation to the tenant farmers farmer system which you know he probably shouldn't have been because it was like he was still like taking advantage of them he probably wasn't paying them well and they were probably still living in the shitty slave cabins that i they had lived in previously so uh. Um, not too long after the end of the war, Amanda got married for the first time, and in true Southern fashion, she married her first cousin, Charles Eubanks. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> so, while I was reading about Amanda's first marriage, there seemed to be a lot of confusion about a couple things concerning Amanda and Charles' relationships. So, first of all, there's the question of whether or not they were ever actually legally married because of laws restricting and banning marriage between people of different races in Georgia. Um, it was not possible for them to be legally married in Georgia. I believe that was like the law of the land for a very long time, well after um, Amanda and Charles got married. Um, it's possible they could have gotten legally married in another state and then got the law to leave them alone because, you know, Amanda's dad was super powerful and people really liked him. Um, either way, after Amanda's marriage you can't see the air quotes i'm doing but i'm doing air quotes around marriage um her and her husband moved to rome georgia to live on charles's plantation plantation well former plantation it wasn't plantation anymore it used to be though um and now that they may or may not be married let's talk about what we know about charles now first of all charles was a recently returned civil war vet veteran so i assume he was at least five or so years older than amanda um i wasn't able to find out for sure but I'm not sure if Amanda married her first cousin Charles out of love or because her father arranged the whole thing to, like, you know, make a good life for her. Because, like, despite everything, marrying Charles was, like, a smart move. He was he was wealthy, well-connected, you know, just like her dad was. He'd have the ability to protect her. But if it's love, it just seems crazy to me that she, a former slave, would want to marry someone who had very recently fought in a war to keep her enslaved. I mean, I don't know much about Charles personally. Um, I couldn't find a ton on him as a person. But I mean, I could be wrong here. After all, some people who fought for the Confederacy were drafted, sometimes forced to fight. But it just seems weird to me that either one of them would want to get married to the other when there were, like, so many things that would make it not work. Like, you know, Charles possibly not thinking his wife deserved, like, rights or whatever. But I guess it seemed to work at least at least at first like how I don't know if this is a weird question how could you possibly want to marry someone who thinks you weren't human and fought a war to keep it that way anyway um Amanda and Charles were married for about four or five years um in that time they had two sons their oldest was born in 1866 soon after they got together um there's a little like small overlap with their wedding so honestly maybe they got Maybe they had a relationship before they got married, and then she got pregnant, so they were like, oh, we gotta put these two together. Um, their oldest son was named Julian, and then in 1870, Amanda gave birth to her second son, Charles Jr., and soon after her second son was born, her marriage, or relationship, seemed to break down. Um, Amanda moved back into her dad's house very quickly after her son, Charles Jr., was born. Um, and her sons ended up legally taking their grandfather's last name as opposed to their father's, which tells me the marriage ended very, very badly for Charles and Amanda. Now, after moving back into her father's house, Amanda raised her sons for seven or so years until she decided it was time to get an education. So she decided to travel to Atlanta, which wasn't too far from her father's plantation. Um, Amanda studied teaching, 
from 1877 to 1878 at the Atlanta Normal School, where she earned a teaching degree and then returned to her father's house, which, you know, good on her for deciding to go get an education after all this time. You know, good, good job, Amanda. Now, once again, back in her father's house, Amanda focused on raising her sons and being her father's, you know, perfect southern belle, you know, with all this money and influence and her cute little baby boys. Um, And that was the life she had until in 1885, her father died rather unexpectedly. Um, David Dickinson had gone out on his morning carriage ride. Uh, He did a little, like, turn about the plantation every day. It was how he got his, like, fresh air in the morning. Uh, he did it in February, which I don't know if that was a good idea. Um, and he complained when he got back that he felt really cold. People didn't think that was all too weird because it was February and it was freezing out that day. Um, he ended up catching a pretty bad chill and died in under an hour. Like, it was very, very quick. Um, naturally, Amanda was devastated by her father's death and apparently cried over her father's body when he passed and declared herself an orphan, which was fucking not true. Her mom was still alive. Um, orphan or not, Amanda got a great gift when her dad died because his will left almost the entirety of his estate and money to Amanda. Now, the the estate included the house she grew up in, along with 17,000 acres of land and a generous income that was hers and hers alone to manage. That is some big piece of cheddar, y'all. Now, naturally, some of her very uh, racist white relatives had to at least try and ruin it for her. Um, Over 79 of Amanda's white relatives sent protests against David Dickinson's will, saying that he was coerced into giving Amanda his estate and that it was wrong for her to have it and that she actually, get this, wasn't David's child. Like, somehow 12-year-old Julia decided to lie about who the father of her child was. People fucking knew. Anyway, the court case to settle this will went super public. Like, it was, like, big news in Georgia, especially in Hancock County, where this is all going on. Um, For the first time, uh, most of Georgian society got to find out that one of the most well-respected farmers and former slave owners in Georgia had a black daughter who he loved and cared about and who he wanted to be his successor. Which was, everyone was like, what? Now, the case went on. Uh, luckily, in the end, the judge ruled in favor of Amanda, and she was awarded the full extent of her inheritance guaranteed to her in her father's will. Now, Amanda's uh, white relatives uh, tried one more time to have the case retri- retried in the Georgia Supreme Court, and one of the judges seemed to be determined to help said relatives overthrow the original ruling. But lucky for Amanda, God was on her side, at least I'd say so, because three days after saying he would help the racist white relatives, uh, that judge got pneumonia and died. (sighs) I love it when karma gets racist like that. Don't you just love that? It's great. It's great. Now, uh, ultimately, the relatives still tried to push for a new trial to overrule the original ruling, and once again, the Georgia Supreme Court ruled in Amanda's favor, citing the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal protection for all citizens under the law, including Amanda, despite the fact that she was mixed race. Now, Amanda's inheritance marked a turning point in her life, and she decided to leave her father's plantation and move to Augusta to raise her children. Um... Any of y'all ever been to Augusta? I don't know why I'm asking that. I'm talking to the void. You guys can't answer back. I've heard Augusta's a nice city. Also, I really like the name Augusta. Don't you guys? Anyway. Um, 
Augusta was a pretty good move for Amanda to uh, go to. Also, in hindsight, all her white relatives who she pissed off uh, lived, like, really decently close to her dad's plantation. So it probably wasn't the best idea for her to live near a whole bunch of people who she pissed off with the fact that she happened to get all the money from her dad's estate and none of them got a lot of money. So probably a good idea to, to move to Augusta. Good job, Amanda. Um, Amanda purchased a large seven-bedroom house at 452 Telfair Street, which was in a growing multiracial neighborhood in Augusta. Um, as I've already said, Augusta was a fine choice for Amanda to move to, as it was becoming a very cosmopolitan city in the 1880s. Citizens could purchase ice from the Arctic Ice Company, uh, which doesn't sound like a big deal now, but having the ability to purchase ice was a huge deal in the 1880s, considering refrigeration is, like, not quite a thing yet. Um, you could purchase ready-made clothes, uh, fresh-cut flowers, fine French wine, a pastry, uh, newspapers edited by black editors, a newspaper edited by a white editor. It was a very diverse and really cool city in the 1880s. Uh, you could also take a ride on a streetcar, which was so cool. Streetcars were, like, just becoming a thing, and they were popping up all over American cities. Uh, not to mention, Amanda had the ability to become a very respected citizen in both the black and white communities in Augusta, thanks to the fact that she was the daughter of a prominent white farmer, uh, but had also been a slave at one point, so she could integrate herself into both communities. Uh, that's not to say Augusta was a perfect city, because it was partially segregated, and, uh, presented quite a lot of problems for Amanda in that respect, but it was still a decent place for her to grow a new life as a mixed-race citizen of this, you know, new slavery-free America. Kinda. Um, Amanda built a life of charity and sociability in Augusta by donating heavily to various, various charities and integrating herself into high-class Augustan life. Now, by the 1880s and 90s, Amanda's sons were old enough to marry and create their own lives as multiracial Georgian citizens, because despite the fact that slavery was, you know, quote-unquote over, um, and also despite the fact that Amanda's sons were, like, 75% white, um, they still technically would have been legally considered black, as far as I'm aware, so, like, some of their, like, movement in high society would have been, um, restricted as multiracial citizens, but other than that, they they had a lot going for them. Um, Amanda's younger son, Charles, made Kate, married Kate Hosley, the mixed-race daughter of a local and prominent bishop. Um, Amanda's older son, Julian, married Eva Walton, another wealthy mixed-race girl from Augusta, and the granddaughter of a signer of the Declaration of Independence, which, good job, boys! Like, those good marriages! I don't know if Amanda, like, um, arranged those, but, like, good choices, boys. Um, soon after both boys got married, Amanda quickly became a grandmother when Julia and his wife Eva had a daughter that they named Julia Francis after Amanda's mother and a son who they named David after Amanda's dad. Now, Charles and Kate also had children very quickly after uh, marriage, and they named their oldest daughter after Amanda, which is so sweet. Speaking of marriage, Amanda's boys were not the only one to get married, because on July 14th, 1892, Amanda got married for a second time to a man named Nathan Toomer. Now, Nathan was the son of an enslaved woman named Kit and an unknown white man, possibly a relative of his enslaver Henry Toomer, or possibly even Henry Toomer himself. As a child, Nathan had served as his master's body servant, which basically meant he cooked and cleaned for Henry during the Civil War and took care of all his belongings, kind of like a butler, or maybe like an equerry. 
Um, in Nathan's time with Henry Toomer, he learned the ways of a white gentleman, which may, would make him a perfect partner for Amanda, who was raised as a white Southern lady, despite both of them being uh, well, either full black or partially black. Now, Nathan was about 10 years older than Amanda and had been married before to a mixed-race woman named Harriet, who had died relatively young. Um, and through Amanda's new marriage, she gained four stepdaughters and one stepson. Um, here they are. I don't know why that transition was weird. I'm sorry. Um, her stepdaughters were 23-year-old Theodosia, which reminds me of Hamilton. Dear Theodosia. <laughs> um, 21-year-old Fanny. Uh... 20-year-old Martha, and 13-year-old Mamie. Now, Amanda and Nathan seemed like they had a lot in common. They were both mixed-race people who had defied the odds and managed to become successful despite their backgrounds. Um, Amanda enjoyed Nathan's company, especially since her poor health had been bothering her for the last couple of years, and it was, you know, it was good to have companionships. Um, companionship, not companionships. That's a plural why can't I speak today? Fuck me. Anyway, um, she was constantly getting visits from the doctor, but Nathan seemed to help relieve some of her pain. It was really nice to have him around. Um, unfortunately for Amanda, one of her sons was about to cause her a whole load of stress that would not help her get better. And let me tell you guys, the story I'm about to tell you about one of Amanda's sons is a twist I did not see coming in the story. So I want you guys to I want you guys to sit down if you're not already sitting down. Um, grab a bucket of popcorn or whatever snack you like, because we're about to take a fucking ride when I tell you. So, I'd like to say, out of both of Amanda's sons, she liked her older son Julian a lot better than her son Charles Jr. Charles Jr. was a little bit, well, too much like his grandfather David, which probably didn't help his case as the younger son. Now, Charles demonstrated this similarity in the fact that despite being an adult and married man, uh, he developed a disturbing infatuation with his stepsister, Mamie, who was 14 years old. Now, Charles' behavior towards his stepsister became so concerning that they decided to send Mamie to a convent in Baltimore to protect her and let the mother superior of the convent know that Charles might try and kidnap her. So, like, you gotta keep her safe. Yeah, you heard me. Kidnap. Charles did, in fact, try to kidnap Mamie by asking his brother-in-law, Dunbar Walton, to go and, you know, pick up, I'm using air quotes again, pick up Mamie for him at the convent. But the mother superior became very suspicious when Dunbar Walton showed up and immediately sent word to Amanda and Nathan to come and fucking get their daughter because Charles is definitely trying to kidnap her. Now, while Amanda and Nathan were making their way to Maryland uh, via train, Charles uh, tried a, another method of trying to kidnap his stepsister uh, by kind of going to get her at the courtroom, uh, by getting a friend of his, again, to sue his brother-in-law for <laughs> falsifying an identity in the hopes that Mamie would have to show up to this court case. But again, the judge got suspicious and was like, yeah, no, Mamie's not coming, bro. Um... You're going to have to, you know, deal with this case without Mamie being here. Um, Charles tried to petition uh, the same court to let him have a divorce from his wife, Kate, so he could marry Mamie, a 14-year-old 14 14 -year girl who was also his stepsister. 
Um, all the conspirators in this, like, grand, like, fucking Looney Tunes attempt to kidnap Mamie were indicted, except for Charles, who escaped scot-free, which is bullshit. Uh, it's really because he was rich and influential. Um, Mamie was sent back to the convent to continue her education, and as far as I know, Charles never tried to kidnap her again. Um, I don't know how she felt all about this, but I'd be like, what? the fuck kind of family did my daddy marry into? Like, poor Mamie. I want to give her, like, a, a beyond-the-grave hug. Like, no one deserves that. Charles is a little creep. He was. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Nathan and Amanda purchased two first-class tickets from the Pullman Palace Car Company to transport them from Baltimore back to Augusta um, after they had, you know, dealt with the whole um, their son trying to kidnap their daughter fiasco. Now, because of racial discrimination, they were denied their first-class accommodations and direct travel to Augusta. Now, I think probably the combination of this crazy kidnapping drama and the stressful conditions of a hot train car and the frustration of getting back to Georgia made Amanda's health deteriorate very quickly. Um, she was diagnosed with this uh, thing that I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of uh, neurasthenia, neurasthenia, which basically means general exhaustion of the nervous system or Baird's disease. Um, and she got this diagnosis when she arrived home in Augusta. There was this, like, whole fiasco. Like I said, they just got denied, like, first-class accommodations. And, like, they were getting, like, delayed. And they were made to stay in this, like, stationary train car that was, like, a million degrees. Because it was so hot. It was the middle of the summer. Um, so that probably also didn't help, like, Amanda's fucking nervous system. Um, three days after they arrived... In Augusta, the pain and suffering Amanda had experienced from Charles and the journey back home was just probably too much for her, and she died in her home on June 11, 1893. Um, Haggy Brothers' funeral home was called to 452 Telfair Street to prepare Amanda for burial. They embalmed her body, dressed it in the wedding gown that she had worn when she married Nathan, which is a very pretty wedding gown, by the way, um, placed her in a very fancy copper casket. Um, Amanda's funeral took place at Trinity Colored Methodist Episcopal Church and was attended by many prominent members of the Augustan community, both black and white. She had a lot of friends in both communities. Now, because Amanda died so suddenly, she died without a will. She hadn't intended on dying, which left her uh, surviving family to fight for her very, very vast inheritance. Um, Amanda's sons, Julian and Charles, petitioned the court to be executors of their mother's estate, and Nathan also petitioned his rights as Amanda's husband to gain control of the estate. Eventually, the boys and Nathan agreed to a settlement in which Nathan received money, and he gave up his claim to be an executor of the estate, which was probably a good idea because when asked uh, to do an inventory of Amanda's estate, he didn't do it, so he probably wasn't responsible enough to handle an estate anyway. But that didn't end the disputes because Nathan tried to sue his stepson and Amanda's uh, mom for the contents of Amanda's house. Reminder that Amanda's mom, Julia, is still fucking alive after all of this. Um, Nathan lost that battle and would eventually go and live with one of his daughters, but not before getting married for a third time to uh, the very wealthy Nina Pinchback, the daughter of a black senator, and becoming a very deadbeat dad to the son Jean Toomer, who became a very, very famous writer, by the way. Um, 
earlier I mentioned that Amanda got a stepson in her marriage to Nathan. I was wrong. I forgot to take that out because I forgot that Jean was born after Amanda died. My bad, by the way. Now, as much as I think Amanda loved Nathan, Nathan probably loved her back. I also think he was a greedy social climber who needed a reality check, which he got um, when Amanda died without a will. And then he died in 1906, having been a deadbeat dad to his son, uh, Jean. Now, before we talk about Amanda's legacy, let's talk briefly about her sons and what they got up to after she died. Now, in 1900, uh, Kate uh, finally divorced her creepy child-chasing husband Charles and took the kids away from him. Ha <laughs> ha! According to uh, Dickinson family oral history, uh, Charles moved to Stockton, California and passed into the white community as Fred Carlisle. He died there of Bright's disease in his early 40s, uh, not too long after uh, him and his wife divorced. Now, Amanda's older son, uh, Julian, and his wife, Eva, moved to Beaufort, South Carolina, to a prominently African-American community. Julian died there on February 1st, 1937, leaving no will or obituary. Unfortunately, uh, Julian didn't take the best care of Amanda's birthplace, the Hancock County Plantation. Uh, Julian lost control of uh, the family uh, plantation in 1912. Um these days, it was considered by the Georgian government to be a good place for a toxic waste dump, so it no longer exists. Um, one last little tidbit about Amanda's family is that her mom, Julia Frances Dickinson, died sometime in January on January 7th, 1914. Um, on that day, she deeded 102 acres, more or less, to her grandson, William Youngblood, who was the son of one of Amanda's half-siblings that Julia had after Amanda was born in a relationship with a fellow slave. Um, Julia was well taken care of by Amanda, um, who gave her plenty of land and plenty of money to live on, and that is what we pretty much know about Julia in general. It's nice that Amanda really took care of her, um, in her older years. <laughs> Fuck, if Julia doesn't deserve it, I don't know who deserved Amanda's money more. Anyway, um... Amanda is remembered by most of her contemporaries as the wealthiest black woman in the South and a well-connected Georgian socialite who walked and talked like a proper Southern lady. But she was so much more than that. Um, I think the author of Amanda's biography, Woman of Color, Daughter of Privilege, uh, Kent Anderson Leslie, said of Amanda at the end of his book, left the security of her father's empire to attend Atlanta University at the age of 27, endured her father's death, used the legal system to fight for control of a vast fortune, left the security of her own plantation, moved to the city of Augusta, and remarried while gaining control of her estate, giving Nathan Tumor gifts. Amanda was a woman of color who was granted a lot of privilege because of a violent act her father perpetrated on her mother. Amanda was tough, ambitious, navigated her way through this uh, segregated Reconstruction South with absolute gumption. I mean, I'm really, I admire her a lot. And I hope that with this episode, more people know about her and like her as much as I do. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode, and I will see you guys in two weeks with the next episode. Goodbye! 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMasonRain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you guys could do that. All right. uh, Bye.